Turns out he's a major cinephile. They don't watch enough movies! It's a very simple formula! And here we go. It is a momentous occasion for this on-and-off-again horror-centric movie podcast. Sometimes superhero things, sometimes others, but a lot of horror. Deep therapy reasons, I'm sure. But one of the big ones, the 13-movie and 5-separate-timeline series Halloween and Michael Myers as we know him, has come to an end with the 2022 release of Halloween Ends. You can either watch it in theaters and have that true movie viewing experience, or if you want, you can turn all the lights off at home, be alone, like Kevin McAllister, it is on Peacock, and you can watch it there, along with both Halloween 2, and if you want a more random one, Abraham Lincoln vs. Zombies, the latter, not sure how quality that is, haven't seen it yet. We'll see if it's as good as Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. I doubt it, but you never know. But instead of talking about hypothetical qualities of historical horrific fiction, save it for another show. We instead are going to talk about the latest and potential final sequel for Michael Myers and Jamie Lee Curtis's Laurie Strode after seven movies in the role she's been in since 1978. The timeline we are talking about will not be the one where she was alive for two movies and died off camera for the last three, nor the timeline where she was alive for the first movie, came back to teach in her Freaky Friday hair era, and died falling off a building in the first few minutes of the second one. And of course we're not talking about the which one or those dumpster fire brain dead Rob Zombie ones. Never those unless to bash them. Instead, this is a story of the first movie's Halloween night, followed by a 40-year pause One crazy night that takes two movies to cover, and of course, we will have a four-year follow-up event to deal with some grief and have one final week or so of scares. But that's not all. On this all-encompassing Hollow Stream episode, we also have something for the younger audiences too. I am of course referring to the long thought about, but never probably consider realistically and eventually got made somehow sequel to hocus pocus now the question is no longer do we need it because it's here the question now remains how is this 90s classic and revisiting it after all these years the vintage one is still flawless as far as this gets concerned so with this being our third episode covering an entry in the halloween series and the long-awaited or at least waited on sequel to the quintessential family-friendly spooky viewing piece of media Let's talk about the presumed end of both of these franchises right here and now. We're starting with the family-friendly one so that you can listen to this and then put the kids to bed for the second scary half. So, with Hocus Pocus 2, and this will come up a lot with this episode, I'll have to mention the OG ones and everything around them. We've, of course, talked about the first of these Hocus Pocus movies around one of the other Halloween episodes, and... The month of October. So many episodes I could say are Halloween-y that we do for podcasts with all the spooky slashers and stuff I watch. But of course, this movie and the sequel included is a family-friendly Halloween one. And it was great to see that Bette Midler, Kathy Nanjimi, and Sarah Jessica Parker all return as the Sanderson sisters back to haunt Salem, even though in this time it takes place in Rhode Island, it's Salem, it's fine. Uh, and Doug Jones is back as the zombie ex-lover TBD. We'll get into it. Billy Butcherson. He is probably most famous for being more of a creature actor, not unlike Andy Serkis and kind of mocap. Remember when Andy Serkis was like in Black Panther acting as a person, not Gollum or some akin to that creature? 
Doug Jones is like the same. Uh, and while sequels, especially long after the first one came out, sequels like to bring new blood into their movies. You never know if a third is on the way or more like the new Ghostbusters and now Scream, but it would kind of help to continue to use the originals to get people to feel the ties before you try to push the franchises in new directions. And sadly, there is no recurrence of the original three kid actors, Omri Katz, who is Max, Vanessa Shaw as Allison, and Thora Birch as Danny, who the later actually had a role in season 10 of The Walking Dead. So how about that for another spooky little thing? I would have settled for even a fun spot for, like, Ice and the other Bully Jay, or at least Max and Danny's parents. Some reference. Like, there are references to most, if not all of them, but, like, seeing them go against the three witches or, like, dealing with them or something would have been way more fun, and it's a real missed opportunity for me. Now, I don't think any of the new kid actors from the modern-day teens, like, really added much for me. But I thought the younger three past versions of the Sanderson sisters were lovely, especially maybe two of the three were like fine. They didn't really do a whole lot. But Taylor Henderson, who plays the young Winifred, she also had the most like to work with other three, but good work. And while not cameos, not massive roles, the other big name ads to the franchise have to be, I don't know this one as well, but Hannah Waddingham, she was in this briefly and I've yet to see Ted Lasso on Apple Plus. It's it's one of those ones I just can't tell myself Apple Plus is worth it yet. I want to see Ted Lasso. I'm sure it'll happen at some point, but I can't do it yet. But the more fun one for me, as in the one that I've kind of more experienced with this actor and his work, is Tony Hale. As in this one, he's both in the past a religious leader and a present-day mayor. He's always been fun for me in his Arrested Development days, and his humor is for sure strong here, too. Maybe it's because I don't watch a ton of period piece witch movies from the 16 and 1700s. I mean, I did see Motherland Fort Salem, but that's more young teen angst and definitely not a period piece, so I don't even count that. But what I did get from this was, at least vibe-wise, was a strong Fear Street Part 3. I think it was like 1666, maybe was the year. And as you may know from that episode I did on that trilogy, that was the least of the three that was my favorite from the movies that Netflix put out last Halloween. Now, this Disney movie is never going to be that gory and gruesome as that, or like, you know, the second season of American Horror Story is not story. This is the anthology new episode is a story every episode, as opposed to one season is a new story every season. And they did something during this witch period, and that was disgusting. I thought American Horror Stories 2 was a little better than season 1 overall, but that one was disgusting. Did not need that in my life. Door's not out on if I'm feeling American Horror Story, the newest season, not the NYC one. But to this in hand, though, this time period and like witch things never really did it for me. I'll mess with vampires and zombies. It's more my jam normally. But that one, Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters with uh, Jeremy Renner needing like insulin shots because of all the candy he when he was a kid from the first witch like that movie was kind of funny that has those van helsing vibes with um uh hugh jackman in it and this of course this movie uh it's a comedy right a comedy that will always draw comparisons to the much ahead of its time and now immortalized by my age demographic at least it's a 90s classic and it's original for hocus pocus 
This one is probably a bit goofier. The first one started off pretty hardcore with showing at least 80% of hangings happening of the Sage Sisters, like, right off the bat. And it also confuses all with characters named uh, Thackeray instead of Zachary. Who the heck? No one, I guarantee you, no one watched the movie and thought it was Thackeray Banks instead of Zachary Banks when they started. And while I miss the original characters and actors, like I said, at least when we're in our period piece time, Young Winifred does still show. And I say, I knew after the fact, I'm shocked I couldn't figure it out. I had no clue Tony Hale was in the beginning as the like leader of the town in the old-timey costume. And maybe it was like the long hair and not looking like Buster from Arrested Development. Maybe that just threw me off and was a bit odd, but... You heard it a little bit when you realize after fact. You kind of heard it in his voice. Also, that spider scene, while brief, it's not like a huge one, like the ones I'm afraid of, like the spider's biggest houses, but still not something I needed. That's it's look, I was big spiders. I don't mess with them. It's one of the reasons I didn't play Skyrim for like a year when I was just, I don't even know when 2008. So I would have been like a teen, I guess, at that point. I played it for a year because of big spiders. They're not even like a crazy enemy you have to deal with, but you know, scary stuff. Um, and look, I would freak out as much as Tony Hale did in that one too. And the line, uh, eight legs of Sid and all that. Uh, not sure if that's a, a jest on him being unaware of like the seven deadly sins, but either way, I thought that was pretty funny. Um, so many good throwback references are tied into new moments here. Um, at least early on, right? You got that same song about taking children away that Sarah Jessica Parker sings another one, this time with the new uh, which uh, we'll call her the mother, the leader, whatever you want to call her. It's interesting that the Sandersons were not always magical. Like, I don't think anyone was asking for all this depth and character development after the first movie of them, but it's cool to see how they kind of got taken on the path of the witch lifestyle. They weren't always evil witches, like the first one would probably say. The first one was more like... uh Mom's Got a Date with a Vampire, another older Disney family fun Hollywood movie. That one was like early 2000s, but if you're looking for another one, Disney Plus has a couple of those that are pretty good. Also, part of me thought that the question of whether the mother figures Witch's Coven went was partly, or I thought entirely, because she did the Magic of Maximus spell herself and learned the hard way that that spell does not uh, really elaborate as to the thing it takes away it says the thing you love but i'm assuming that's how she lost her coven i at least that's what i took away from it not sure if that is the case but that was what my interpretation was at least there are some new wish halloween songs in this movie if you're looking for things to add to your classics of monster mash and ghostbusters for a more developed pronounced playlist and Look, there's only so many songs for the season. Also, not having a true boy this time around, but instead having like a dumb jock is like very, very on the nose. And boy, did they make him dumb this time around. And he wasn't even problematic. Like the the direction, some of the the teen angst stuff doesn't really make sense. Um, but now the problem, one of the bigger ones about this movie is I just don't care about the majority of new characters at all. The parallels of the powerful nature of sisterhood personified by, you know, witches covens being a thing for women with a strong bond, be that as a friends or literal sisters, it's a good counterpoint comparison to the Sanderson sisters. I just don't really care for anyone, and I find myself a lot of times watching this and waiting for the Sanderson sisters to be on camera, or the occasional modern-day Tony Hale stuff, because he's actually hilarious in this. 
this just isn't the same vibe that we had with the original three kids taking on the witches. Maybe it's the brother and sister storyline parallels from the first one was better, um, which compared to you know that of Thackeray Binks and his sister. And look, the lack of Thackeray Binks in cat form, like it would be cheap to have him come back after the end of the first one, which was pretty good. But the lack of that character type in this one is a bit of a letdown, and you can feel I'm missing. And I don't care what you say, that new cat. It's not Thankery Banks. Like I don't care what the post credit scene is. It's just a cat. There's no no way. If that cat was him, and they didn't have him talking to Saka one, that was a terrible decision. And but I don't think that's what case. I think it's just a cat that's smart. I guess we'll go that way. Like when someone pitched a live action Mulan, think of it this way: the omission of Thackeray Banks, and instead they said, "Let's take all the fun musical numbers. There are some bangers in that movie, the animated one, and let's also get rid of Mushu. Like terrible idea." It's like one of the things that makes Mulan Mulan. That's why the live action one was so bad. Uh, not sure if Gilbert is supposed to be some sort of, I don't know if replacement for Binks is the right word. It's not really his character arc or anything like that. Just someone who has some magical understanding. But even he, I feel, really does not add anything crazy to the movie and just ends up helping the witches out because he saw them as a kid being the one to trick the new leading ladies to light the black flame candle on not just out of, you know, machismo like Max did in the first one. It's just a bit of a bummer. Some of the characters that you would have liked to have seen in the first one and the new ones do just don't do enough to replace them. Tony Hill is also great, not just being funny, but also just being like a fun, supportive family dad. Thank goodness he was not some like evil villain thrown in there like Calabar or Calabar's son in the first two Halloween towns. He was just fun in this. And he, he always is in those movies that he's in or the shows he's in. And him not being able to get his caramel apple is the ultimate pain. He just wanted one piece from this thing all season. One thing. Especially because he had one, right? He had the last one and then it was gone after this, you know, bewitching flash mob thing. Truly sad. The new songs are far enough, right? You could add them to the playlist for sure. But they could never do as much as the original musical bop from the first time I put a spell on you. And that's a theme we'll talk about a ton, as you'll probably hear. But the good news is when the Sanderson sisters are back on camera all together again, they are once again super funny. The chemistry and internal jokes are still pretty funny, or at least most of them are. There's always a question of how they know some pop culture things and not others, like advancements of technology like the motion control doors seeming as magic like that was still pretty funny even though you wonder how they don't know that but they also know like a billy joel song where where did that come in right there's there's just a question um you know i would say some of this stuff like eating a makeup product is maybe a little bit much like you know eating the face mask and stuff but even the cringier parts and jokes are still funny just because of the delivery of Midler, Najimi, and Jessica Parker. And yes, the broom scene, having returned the first time, you know, the one which needed a vacuum. Now we have a Swiffer and some Roombas. It was a fun callback to the first one with that vacuum. And these Roombas actually have a big part in the movie overall. It's something I did not expect to enjoy as much as I did. There are good callbacks. The Amuckamucks, and like just similar things that hit on from the first one. These are still just so many things that this movie relies on from the first one for the best parts, but does not make enough unique good things to add much more. They did give more characteristics and personality to, like, the book this time, which was a fun surprise. Not just, like, an eyeball that moves around on the book. 
I do like that Doug Jones is back as Billy because they needed something other than the three sisters. He does about as much as the last movie, but in this case, that's a good thing here because he had something, right? There are a lot more distractions for the Sanderson sisters this time around, too, and like the costume contest is just not nearly as fun as kids being dressed in costumes and disguised as monsters and they can't tell, or even the like pit stop to the one guy's house with the devil, which is weirdly shown in movies, like, and it's Halloween costumes. Somehow you're always questioning what's fiction, what's not. Maybe it was just like a mockumentary documentary thing about the events that happened in the 90s i guess there's also much more just separation from the storylines this time than max alice and danny being hunted through halloween and the activities around it like the last time and yes the music take over the town which song is once again back it's just not as good with the riffs this time on elton john's the witch is back instead of what that normally is and then blondie's one way or another they're both fine they're just not as good deja vu i know But the book being alive and well and like sweating and crying was very funny for a neat add to the overall lore of a book which somehow is a more exciting character than other things. Probably one of the more clever and funny callbacks to this movie, making use of the reference to the first one, but expanding on it has to be like, so okay, right? You have the Roombas as a broom, that's the joke, but they're kind of always around town and they're not doing a lot, but... When the moment of the Roombas like cleaning up the salt circle and freeing the trap witches, like when I saw those Roombas climb over and come over the driveway horizon, like that was hilarious and you knew what was coming. And even in that moment, the the phrase of gothic golden girls in my garage being uttered by Tony Hale right before that, like you can tell when I thought this movie shined based on the highlights I'm bringing. And while I can appreciate the sisters and friends coven parallels that are here, it's all just missing something, and it seems like anyone can be a witch now. What what are the chances these three girls are magical enough to get it done here and take on these other witches? But I want to give one big thing out of here. This movie was somewhat of a character development analysis piece, and there was something to be said about the accidental sacrificing of the two of the Sanderson sisters being sent away to who knows where. It was a sad moment, to be sure, after that spell, which they're like, oh, don't do it, and she gosh darn did it. This movie has some more emotional moments than maybe the first one. And, like, there are weird spots in the middle taking the focus off the Sanderson sisters and having a less interesting foil for them to combat. Not even Jay and Ernie, I mean, Ice, are here. Like, everything's mentioned but not seen. But the end was nice to send the final Sanderson sisters to be joined back with her sisters, often wherever they all ended up after that magic power spell. So, yeah. Maybe this was not the perfect movie. I don't think it was. It sure was not. And not a perfect or even great at times sequel for Disney Channel and Halloween Classic. But it had enough fun callbacks and overall cute enough storyline to be fine. It was not bad at all. But I do not think it was the amazing every year rewatch that we all hoped it would be. I'm happy I watched it. I just wish it was a bit better overall. Having more characters from the first one. A few more interesting things to build on while still doing its own thing, but it for sure did justice to the Sanderson sisters, the easily best and main part of the movie. So family-friendly Halloween is over, send the kids to bed, and now we're off to the spookier film of this double feature, and we're going to talk about it and see how it you know, relates to the other 12 entries in that Halloween saga, and we'll finally see 
how Halloween ends. In Halloween ends the movie. See what I did there? Throwing the name in there. What are we? Some kind of suicide squad? Anyway, who is in this movie, though? Halloween ends. Well, the question, of course, to start should be, who is returning? And there are some staple leads, you know, from this new trilogy and the series as a whole. So, duh, Jamie Lee Curtis is back. JLC, what, what? And while this Michael's the same from this trilogy, for the most part, a ton of people have donned the mask, right? But outside of the obvious two, Andy Matichak is back as Strode's granddaughter, who was for sure one of the highlights of this new trilogy in the first two. Will Patton, who, while he seemed at times like a pseudo-Donald Pleasance, even though we never got him, you know, rip one of the goats of the franchise... He was in the first one a lot, the second one barely, and somewhat here in this one. I'd say closer to barely, too. Also, remember when he was in the last Purge movie or when he was in Swamp Thing, that show? One day I should probably finish that show on, I would have said HBO Max if they put it back on there one day, but I don't even know if you can stream Swamp Thing anywhere, the live action thing. And one of the probably lesser skill, but still cool to see back is uh, Kyle Richards, who played one of the kids, Lindsay, in the first one from 1978. And was back in Halloween Kills. And I thought she was actually pretty good in Halloween Kills. Where, like, that movie was killing off every legacy character they could find. Still upset we never saw Paul Rudd reprise his role in Halloween Kills. Like, I get it. Ghostbusters is cool. But, you know, maybe they're making another one. Maybe he'll be in it too. And he'll be a recurring, the new uh, Rick Moranis in those movies. But, um, also, in case you were unsure... Uh, Judy Greer, yes, she did die in that second one. It seemed obvious from that, you know, director's cut or not, but yeah, she's gone. There was no shot she was back after how that second one ended, even if you didn't watch the director's cut. Outside of that, smaller role characters are back here too. The young kids being babysat in the first one. The young kid being babysat in the first one of these in 2018. The cowboy hat wearing sheriff. And somehow the woman who got stabbed... Uh, with the fluorescent light in her vocal cords is back shockingly that was probably the most eyebrow raising like how is she back not an actor i knew but the big ad from the plot wise is rohan campbell playing coriatine who has a huge role in this movie which we'll get to you know discuss uh how that plays into what happens in this movie and if the idea with his character which shapes a lot of the plot of this movie works or not to not only end this movie, but the latest timeline of Halloween. So another fun thing, there are always a few more fun Halloween playlist editions uh, with this movie too. Look, it's easy to fill up a Christmas playlist or two. Thanksgiving is probably impossible without exclusively Bob's Burgers songs, but Halloween is somewhere in the middle. It's a bit iffy with just how many good songs there are to fill out a unique playlist beside like the big two. You could throw Rock Lobster, Time Warp, bad moon rising but at a point you're getting real niche stuff unless you're throwing a lot of nightmare before christmas in there but uh the beginning of this movie really does kind of throw us in a random spot with meeting a random kid family babysitter once again the question is always and at least watching on how much time did we need to spend on a random family trying to wrap another timeline of this franchise up but you for sure thought you know watching as michael would come and kill someone in this group like the kid said, though, Michael kills babysitters, not kids, so you would have thought. Although he does kill one kid in that 2018 one, don't forget. Um, but this kid, Jeremy, shout out to my boy Jeremy in the real world. Uh, 
he's not at all like this kid, Jeremy. Jeremy in the real world, cool. Jeremy, this kid in the movie, not cool. What a what a what a lame. Um, and look, like this kid is the worst in this. You gotta feel bad for Corey with how this all goes down. You have to think like. In general, he's safe by horror movie rules. He's going for the chalk of milk instead of beer. Remember, drinking is a big no-no to be in a horror movie. It's an extension of sin, just like smoking reefer. Uh, but some big rules are broken early on with, you know, he opens the door wide open, leaves it open to check outside, see where this kid is. Like, that's not good. And while there was this thought of danger, you know, I expected Michael to come for sure. And when I almost knew, like, seeing the knife that the babysitter was going to accidentally maybe kill the kid, like, I thought I was going to stab him instead, and kind of like the accidental death in Halloween Kills with the sheriff police flashback. Now, while I was kind of right, there were a few more steps that I didn't foresee. The babysitter was accidentally, like, pushed the kid off a railing, and the kid was a bit more of a jerk in the lead up to how this happened, locking him along. Now, the tough part is the setup of Corey being overheard is he's going to go kill Jeremy, and then it actually happens right as his parents come in. Like, it was hardcore-ish. Like, seeing a kid death, something that only happens in, like, a few times overall of all Halloween, like, movies, all 13 of them. It was crazy. Like, a good setup and all, but at times the movie has things that are like fine and nice with teens being jerks and getting got and all that other stuff but it just barely focuses on michael at times who is the face of the franchise either him or jamie lee curtis so a bit of a let off overall going into this one and kind of throughout the second one sideline curtis for not an insignificant amount of time and this one sidelines michael for once again not an insignificant amount of time why did only the 2018 one both focus on them and kind of bring them together for an important pivotal, like just moments of the emotional and eventual important resolution of this conflict. So one of the big criticisms of the second one of these new trilogy movies from my last episode about these was that there had to be this whole focus on Michael making the town evil and literally haunting and somehow making the whole town go wild, just his presence and visage it feels too much to believe at times the story here is this all calls for people killing themselves or committing big crimes it always just feels like a lot of a stretch i like that the town is more alive and has character but between the big mob from kills to this story this movie tells us that this town is just a crazy horrible murderville and bully palooza because of michael's existence and impact on the whole town psyche, that feels like an extreme stretch. And like I said, Judy Greer is super dead. No mystery on that one. It's more of a big character study story about relationships, kind of what Hocus Pocus tried doing. The generational trauma slang, all three of these uh, movies, and all three of the stored women have talked about and expressed, but now we have a grandma-granddaughter story with the middle and like the daughter mother cog taken out of the story but that sounds great in practice but this focus on Corey will be both weird and jarring for people in this entry the final entry that introduced a whole new character that has probably too big of a role in this movie he's not some random son of michael and i don't know that might have been worse too he's a guy who bad things have happened to and he becomes super bad 
it's kind of like when they tried making Tommy Jarvis a villain and a Jason replacement in the very bad and fifth Friday the 13th movie. They eventually backtracked and kept him as good. And thankfully, when they made um, Halloween 6 Jason Lives, it's one of the best movies of the franchise. Uh, Halloween might have tried to do this with Jamie in Halloween 4 to 6, but to no avail. And it does happen here, though. It does happen officially. It just does not work out amazingly. Like, seeing Allison, a character who we were so excited about, and look, we're not saying Corey's the best ever. We'll get to him. But apparently the guy she did before was a creepier, much older police guy. And look, you could say, okay, you find protection in police guys to me. That's why I date him. But and I know it's meant to be weird. Like, I know there's a reason for it. But you're just bummed out for how out of character she feels in this movie compared to her badass nature in the other ones. So a lot of unrealistic things take place in Halloween ends. But let us go off on a tangent here. This movie takes place, let's remember, in Illinois. Just remember that. So we meet a group of band kids. Somehow, they have become, in this movie, the biggest bullies you've ever seen. How the heck did that happen? And who approved that idea in the script process? I get that it's always jocks or whatnot, but band kids, get out of here. Scram. But one of these boys is straight out of New Jersey, New York, or freaking Sicily. Like, I enjoy having one of my people in this movie. And Michael Barbieri like is him he is that guy but it takes you out of this movie so much and this whole concept just becomes like a comedy this movie is absurdly weird at times and funny and it probably didn't mean to be in that way this of course leads to us meeting jamie lee curtis again still amazing helping slash some kid bully tires like we know she is the leading lady and she kills it on screen and while she is still the best the worst part of this movie is that it tarnishes the legacy of Allison, like, a lot. She was badass in the second one, and even in the first one, she grew into that a little bit more. And now she falls in love with a guy who, at first, okay, we're on board for enough. By the end of it, and even, like, a little bit through it, he's being, like, obviously a bit of a psycho killer, and somehow she just ignores it and can't see that in front of her. Boo, tomato, tomato. Like, look, I... I'm sure the Hallmark love story of young love is cute early on, and I'm even with it. I don't even like Hallmark movies or rom-coms, and I'm down with it. I don't mind it at all. There's, like, cute dialogue and jokes after that. Like, they're making dad jokes. It just, I was digging it. It just takes away so much potential Michael Myers screen time and ruins the leading character arc eventually. All three Strode women were cast amazingly in this trilogy, but they killed off one and sent the other one on a terrible lover arc. And while it may not super matter Lindsay, one of the returning characters from the last one and the first movie way back in 78 there's absolutely nothing here outside of bartender bid and read some tarot cards i get that we can't have everyone with a fleshed out story but still a little bit of a disappointment also the better love story in this is laurie strode and frank hawkins like their grocery store scene is divine 10 out of 10 that's what I'm here for. Cute banter about maybe being healthier, new hobbies. Like, I enjoyed some of these slower parts. Now, this movie somehow brings back the woman who got stabbed with a fluorescent light in the last one to unjustly blame Jamie Lee Curtis and ruining their blossoming relationship love scene. Like, what the heck? Conflict is good and all, but still, this is a strange narrative. We all know and more people should know those dang podcast people in the 2018 one were the Michael Myers provokers, and they got got for it. Not like my Innocent Enough podcast, that pretty is 
not like my Innocent Enough podcast is pretty positive outside of like talking crap about the Rob Zombie Halloween movies and a few other stabs at some less than fun movies. The Corey story and downfall might be like fine at times, at best, only fine. Also, I wish my Halloween bar night was as wild as the one that Corey and Allison were having. Like, I had an okay time, but they were like having seizures on the dance floor, having so much fun with all the the vibes going on. But one of the true scariest moments of this movie has to be Corey. He's having a good time. He's smiling for like the first time in his life, in ages probably. And he sees the mom of the kitty accidentally killed. Like, holy heck, that moment was good. That had to be one of the best parts of the whole movie, hands down. This storytelling was so good. But outside of that, things just make no sense so many times. Allison is trying to help him out, and she likes him and stuff. Like, sure, neither one of them is right, and, like, they're both wrong. They're both kind of communicating and seeing things from another person's perspective. But, like, it feels like things are happening for the sake of progressing and making Corey evil, not just because. Like, this movie does have grief and therapy trauma exploration, which is obviously good. More of that, and look, that's the continued legacy of my podcast, but the way the movie gets there is, like, too much. Those hardcore band bullies feel just like the beginning of it, part two, which was too much for no reason. Also, where's that six-hour Andy Muschietti cut of the whole it thing? Also, back to this movie, that one band girl should have left that friend group ages ago. She seems to be normal enough, sympathetic, and has no business being there. And she gets got in this movie at the end in the most, like, hardcore way for no reason. Like, that babysitter in the first of those three new Jurassic Park movies getting, like, eaten way too hard by multiple dinosaurs for doing, like, nothing really wrong. Just being a moderately disinterested babysitter. First, the pterodactyl gets her and she's flying and, like, dealing with that. And then the dinosaur that's eating her gets eaten by this big mosasaurus coming out of the water, like... Holy heck, right? Like, that's some hardcore stuff. Dinosaur tangent over. Back to this movie. Holy heck, this whole Michael and Corey strained relationship is just a lot to believe, too. About as much as, like, a true-born Jersey Italian living in Illinois and still having that accent. Also, I'm sure the cops don't like Corey, but maybe report that, like, some of those kids try to murder you or that Michael's alive. I don't know. One of the two. Also, Allison... When this weirdo says he's killed someone, maybe tell your grandma or the cops or anybody. Like, he's a weird guy who went through some horrible stuff with an overbearing mom. Like, that's all tough, but, like, if you kill a guy, come on now. It's weird to see where, like, Corey went wrong. It's even tough to see it sometimes, but things are just too much to follow. And this movie could have been, like, the the conflict could have been stopped so, so easily and like the logic drops here and confusion as well as just saying like something to the authorities I feel like anything like look Michael wasn't getting out of that sewer just living in the sewer you send a couple cops on there they'll probably figure it out and this is done I whoo anyway Corey just instead is allowed to go on a rampage of anyone who's ever wronged him or Allison which you think would be a sign to her that hey the doctor who was giving you grief, and the nurse who took that promotion that you wanted are both dead. Hmm. I wonder 
who would kill them and would know that they were annoying you. The DJ who's a jerk to you both. I wonder who would kill him. Those band kids who bully Corey. Weird, they're all dead. Wonder who did that. Things just are too much. With him constantly killing people, getting more injured, and still Allison is, like, clueless. Like, why did they do this to her and make her, like, she's just such an easily manipulated character. And it it's so out of pocket. Now, while some of this is just shocking, thankfully Jamie Lee Curtis gets it and at least knows what's going on. Now, she can't save people or fix it somehow, but at least she gets it. We can't knock the legacy of Jamie Lee Curtis and how much of a badass she is, at least. While the logic and just stupid nature of people in this movie is bad, like really bad, the kills are actually pretty good when they happen. The Gorn stuff is on point and the kills are unique, like the DJ's tongue spinning on the record player and then hearing on the radio later on, or any number of the junkyard deaths. And of course, this weird stuff all starts off with, like, Corey going back and bullying Michael Myers for his mask. He does the sit-up too again, because of course he does. And he needs that mask, because his first mask was trash. You need a good killer mask, obviously. No just nonsense scarecrow one. And we all know, like, a fake killer of the real one is not good. Circa Friday the 13th, Part 5, A New Beginning. It's just why mess with the classics. You can add to the lore and make new things, but don't mess with the classics. While this movie and Corey do some crazy deaths, that girl Margot, the bang girl who was nice enough and just hung out with a bad crowd, she gets ran over and her face stomped on. It's too much. Corey was hardcore. Look, he burned a guy's mouth with a torch to kill him. I mean, thankfully it happened like a little off camera and soft focus, but jeez. The kills were there and like Michael-like. It just was weird because it wasn't Michael doing them all. I don't know if they were too gore or too hardcore. Maybe it's just the fact that it wasn't Michael doing it. The tone of how this all happens is just too much at times. And putting the main killer as like a random kid who got turned evil by the town. I get that's the weird tone and messaging this movie trilogy went for after the first one, which was perfect. The second one just went off on that tangent. Third one kept it going. But it's just too much sometimes. There are fun, cool parts of this movie. That is true. Jamie Lee Curtis tricking Corey and taking him out just for him to be the victim and get her granddaughter to see her as a villain and making it look like she killed uh, him and he's innocent. Like, that's some Jerry Smith-level victimizing of himself for Rick and Morty. But it's crazy that Allison is so dumb to think her grandma would kill a random guy that she liked with no cause. But once again... Allison really became worse in this one. Why is this girl simping hard for this average AF guy? Like, props to Corey for weaponizing being a victim, but what the heck, Allison? Be smarter in this movie. Jeez Louise. Now, while it takes a while, the final fight between Michael and Laurie Strode is pretty good. There are some callbacks to the first movie with hiding in the closet as her spot from the last time, Michael not falling for the old knitting needle in the neck trick again, and instead, he turns around on Laurie. She's the one who gets got with some knitting needles. Now, There are some really good set piece moments in this fight. It has everything throwing people across the room, the garbage disposal, and so many knives impaling moments. And a few signature Michael, like, sit-up moments. Now, they don't use a kitchen sink, but they throw pretty much everything else at it, including a fridge. Now, look, this is a weaker Michael who's been worn down with his injuries and his age. This is a mercy killing by the end of a like a warrior of evil and chaos who just would not quit and he finally got taken out. He was eventually unmasked, symbolic, 
and like stabbed just enough times to kill him. And while they did not cut his head off, like to finally kill him, like they're supposed to do in the sequels and the final movie, like Scream 3, the rules, we know the rules, of course. He finally gets his like jugular cut, something that you'd say is tough to come back from, but his pain tolerance is off the chain. Something that's never really explained somehow, but thankfully, like, he even after getting that happen, he's still almost going to take out uh, Jamie Lee Curtis. But thankfully, uh, Allison comes back and they start, like, breaking all his arm bones and cutting his veins open. Like, there's no shot. He is super duper dead now. But in case that wasn't enough, the town knew the rules. They, you know, do the right thing. We won't say morally, but probably the right thing. And make sure Michael can't ever come back. There's a whole funeral march procession. Bringing him to a trash grinder and throwing his dead body in. Like it's some mob mentality stuff that we saw in the last one. From this crazy ass town. But if nothing else. There is no shot Michael Myers is still alive in this continuity and storyline. And we're pretty sure Jamie Lee Curtis is done with these two. Fine. We do get a few images of some more random characters who have survived in the past. Throughout like this one. And it is, uh, I guess, fitting enough end. Yeah. Halloween did end in this one. It's ended. Is it a perfect end cap to the franchise and series? No. No, it is not. Especially with how strong the 2018 one was. But it was the end we got. It was fine enough. Will I rewatch this as much as some of the other ones from Halloween? Probably not. No. I did a lot of rearranging, but it currently sits at 9th on my Halloween 13 film list. I did a lot of moving and grooving on that one if you want to take a peek on letterbox the buster rhymes one has bolted up the list as it's just like fun and even the curse of michael myers is up there a little higher the producer's cut i always have to preference i have the producer's cut it's better um even that rose up a bit on the ranks i'd probably watch that one more than this but fret not it's nowhere near as bad as those trash af rob zombie ones or even season of the witch which some people like i just can't i can't i don't care about it but before I get off to end this episode, I'm look at some letterbox rankings for these two movies of choice. I want to talk about just a little end cap. The love story end for Laurie Strode was a great way to have her end in movie and give her a happy ending after all. And Allison is hopefully with better taste than boys, you know, after the saga in her life, she's off to go live her life. And it's at least happy end for our main two Strode women who are back. I just don't love how it got there. But to the ratings. So, you know, I don't know what I thought about these two. I was probably cautiously optimistic about Hocus Pocus 2 and I was hopeful for Halloween ends. So here's what we got. Halloween ends. And I it changed a lot. Especially from the recency bias of when I first saw in theaters. But it's down to like a 2.5. It's fine. There's some good kills. There's some nice love moments. Like, I like parts of the movie. I doesn't feel like a true Halloween movie at times, but there's just some rough logic jumps, and it really tarnishes Allison's character, and that kind of pissed me off more than I would have thought. And of course, making Corey take over from Michael for most of the movie, rough. I think you'll still enjoy this as a Halloween movie, but not nearly as much as some of the other ones. There's a reason, and like I said, go check out my letterbox list of the whole franchise and see where I stand. And that could always change, but I feel pretty good about it right now. Hocus Pocus 2. You never know what to expect. You know, I thought the new Scream when I saw the trailer, I thought, okay, I can dig it. Ghostbusters, Afterlife, I thought, maybe. It was fine. Matrix 4, bad, bad, bad. 
So where does Hocus Pocus 2 land in the next of these long-awaited sequels or long-presumed sequels to eventually get one? Well, I gave it three stars. That's fine. Average. A little above average, but average. Like, Sarah's sisters are great. There was some, it was just fun callback moments. A little bit of its own thing was good. Tony Hale was very funny, but the whole lack of original characters back, so many of them were missing. The new leads not doing a ton to add anything, and I get it, the Sarah's sisters and the plot of making it a coven sister story, but it just, it never did enough new stuff good, and it referenced old stuff, but it really should have referenced the characters of the old ones, not just the some moments of the old one. So they're both fine. So happy Halloween, listener. I know this is a bit of a downer, and I hope it wasn't too scary for you, but happy to celebrate another spooky season with you on here. And do not fret. More scary movies will, of course, be on and around this podcast. But what did you think of some of these latest franchise end caps for some Halloween classics? I feel like you can say that with the first Hocus Pocus and Halloween, like the first one, and a few others... H2O, the also named Halloween 2018 one, they're all strong entries. We still have to get to the Hulu and Netflix latest scary movies in Prey and Day Shift, eventually, I promise. But until then, make sure to let us know on social at knickknackmovies or knickknack underscore IC on all social platforms, including TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, and more, and Letterboxd, of course. What is your favorite scary movie to get you in the seasonal mood? Well, that's all for me. Can't wait to hear from you, and cheers, and as always, until next time, cinephiles. Are you not entertained? I think this is going to be the beginning of a beautiful friendship. I don't like goodbyes. Let's just call this, see you later, alligator.